be looking at Psalm 88, uh, Psalm 88, and uh, I feel a bit like uh, Tim Keller who once uh, apologized to his congregation for the sermon he was about to preach because uh, the service had uh, been filled with joy, the worship had brought them to uh, a mountaintop if you like, and as he came up to preach on Psalm 88, uh, he was about to take them into the valley. Uh, and that feels uh, distinctly familiar uh, this morning because after the, the wonderful worship that we've enjoyed, uh, I'm going to bring the mood down a bit uh, and invite you now to think about the experience of anguish and suffering and darkness, uh, to think about lament. Because we've been looking in recent weeks at some of the songs of praise that the Bible gives us to sing. Because right in the middle of your Bible is a book of 150 songs of praises that the Bible gives us to sing. And sometimes those songs are songs of joy and celebration. And sometimes those songs talk about the greatness of God and what He has done. Sometimes we sing songs about the history of God's people. And then very often we are given songs of lament to sing. So then let me ask you the question, what does praise look like? What does praise sound like? What does praise feel like? Can despair be praise? Can despair be worship? Well, let's have have a look at Psalm 88. It's, it's given to us by Haman the Ezraite. You can read about him in, in 1 Chronicles chapter 15 and 16. Haman was, uh, was one of Israel's chief worship leaders. He is the guy who is leading Israel in singing praises to God. And this is his one shot, right? He only gets one psalm in the whole of the book of Psalms. What does he give us? Well, Psalm 88, verse 1. O Lord God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. That's the place of the dead. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm a man who has no strength, like one set loose, among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with your waves. Selah. Do you know about Selah in the Psalms? It's kind of like a, a musical direction. It tells the band to go off and do an instrumental, if you like, while you just think about the words. All the waves of God have overwhelmed me. Selah. Just think about that for a bit. And then it goes on, verse 8. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eyes grow dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Selah. 
Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness and abandoned the place of destruction? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You've caused my beloved and my friends to shun me. My companions have become darkness. If you're reading this in the Bible, maybe there's a footnote there, or, or maybe you're reading it in a translation that says this, darkness is my closest friend. I mean, what a way to finish a prayer. What a way to finish a song of praise. The final word is darkness. Amen. What kind of prayer is that? I mean, sure, the prayer begins, O God of my salvation, but that's, the, that's the, the, the most hopeful note in the whole thing. Then it's all the way downhill into the pit, and we finish with, darkness is my closest friend. What does worship feel like? Can despair be worship? Yes. Yes, it can. In fact, did you know that all of all the kinds of psalms that there are, psalms of lament are the most popular? One in three uh, uh, of the psalms in, in, is, is a psalm of lament. So, sometimes it's about an individual suffering, like here in Psalm 88. Sometimes it's about the whole community suffering. You know, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and wept as, when we remembered uh, Zion. Sometimes it's about the community suffering. Sometimes it's the suffering that we have brought upon ourselves through our sin. And then sometimes it's not the problem, it's not the problem that God is absent. Sometimes the problem is that God is present and you just can't escape from him. So Psalm 39, another psalm of lament, it ends like this. God, look away from me that I may enjoy life again before I depart and am no more. Amen. What kind of prayer is that? Are you allowed to pray that? Well, apparently the Holy Spirit seems to think so. He authored that prayer, and he put it in the songbook of God's people, and people have been singing that song for the better part of 3,000 years. Can despair be worship? Here in Psalm 88, we end in the dark. Darkness is my closest friend. It, it's kind of the idea that, that at the end of the day, at least the oblivion of sleep will just wipe my memory uh, for a bit. That, that's my one hope. My one hope is just oblivion, the darkness. That's how the psalm ends. Should this be in the Bible? I mean, you won't find this kind of prayer in other religious texts around the world, this kind of rawness, this, this kind of anguish, this kind of frustration even directed towards God, usually sets prayers, they're put on the lips of, of the unfaithful, of, of the ungodly, but here in the Bible, faithful worshipers of God pray like this. We expect uh, songs of anguish out there in the world. 
songs like Fontaine's in, in, in Les Miserables. This, is, you know, this, this so often reminds me of that song. You know, I dreamed a dream in time gone by when hope was high and life worth living. I dreamed that love would never die. I dreamed that God would be forgiving. But the tigers come at night with their voices soft as thunder as they tear your hope apart, as they tear your dream to shame. I had a, a dream my life would be so different than the hell I'm living, so different now from what it seemed. Now life has killed the dream I dreamed. We understand how that song belongs in the musical. Does it really belong in the Bible? Oh, yes. That song and scores more like it. Despair can be praise. Despair can be worship. Because despair can be prayed. It can be prayed. What do you do with your despair? What do you do with it? I know what some of you do with it. You bury it under layer and layer of politeness, and then you go have a cup of tea. And you never let on uh, that it's there until you're in traffic, right? And then, it's, and, then it, and then it all comes out. I know what you're like. You know, middle-aged men are like that. We, we bury despair under layer after layer of bravado and beer. And then we kill ourselves in unparalleled numbers. You know, men in my age group are the most at risk of killing themselves of any group. All the while we say, no worries, no worries. And then we blow our brains out. What do we do with our despair? Do we acknowledge it? Do we say it's real or do we bury it deep, 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 deep down? The Psalms teach us what to do with our despair. We pray it. We vocalize it. We put words to it, to God. And that's okay. Then despair becomes praise. If you vocalize it and just speak it out to others, that's called grumbling. The people of God all through the Old Testament, they were great grumblers, weren't they? All the time speaking out their despair to one another. It's a terrible sin. And, and, and it's no good for your spiritual or mental health. It is bitter and it is embittering. But, but so often what we do with our lament is we just bottle it up. Or we speak it out to, to others grumbling. Do you know what? I don't know if you've heard of it, but do you know what protest atheism is? Atheism is non-belief in God. Protest atheism, what it is, is it refuses to accept that God, if God exists, is worthy of worship. It's people who say, sure, God might exist, but there is no way that I'm going to believe in him. You can, you can give me a hundred different arguments for the existence of God, and they might be watertight, but there, but there is no way I'm trusting in Him. I mean, look at the world. Look at all the suffering. Look what's happening in my life. I will not believe in that kind of God. That's protest atheism. But, you know, you read some of the stuff that people who are involved um, in protest atheism write, what they write, you know what it sounds like? It sounds like Psalm 88. Without, with, with only one minor but major difference. The one difference is, instead of addressing it to God, it's addressed 
to the world about God. But actually, Psalm 88 teaches us what to do with our anguish, with our anger, with, with our rage against God. Pray it to Him. Take it to Him. And so in Psalm 88, it begins, O Lord God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Before you. And suddenly, pain, anguish, suffering becomes praise as we pray it. So let's let Psalm 88 teach us how we can articulate our despair. The psalmist gives us three different pictures, I think, of how he's feeling in the moment. And I wonder if, 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 if any of them resonate with you. First of all, he tells us he feels like he's buried alive. Buried alive. From verse 3 to 6, he says this, For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol, the place of the dead. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. This is him feeling like he's already, he's dead already. This is him feeling like he's buried alive. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt as if, you're, as if you're dead already? You just wish that you could feel something. I start talking about anguish and you think, oh, I'm so beneath anguish. I can't even raise myself to get angry. I, I, I'm just numb. I'm, I'm dead already. And the psalmist puts words to it. And some of you know uh, the great 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon, a man who wrote, I think, probably the best commentary on the Psalms ever. And, and I don't think it's, it's a coincidence that he was a man who suffered from deep depression, a, a man who, who knew about anguish, a, a man who knew about the pit. And, and he's penned the most beautiful commentary on the Psalms. And as he comments on these verses, just listen to how he describes the anguish of the psalmist. He says, the psalmist felt as if he were as utterly forgotten as those whose carcasses are left to rot on the battlefield. As when a soldier mortally wounded bleeds unheeded amid the heaps of slain and remains to his last expiring groan unpitied and unsuckered. So did Haman sigh out his soul in loneliest sorrow, feeling as if even God himself had quite forgotten him. And then he says this, How low the spirits of good and brave men will sometimes sink. Under the influence of certain disorders, everything will wear a somber aspect. This is many, many year, year, you know, years before anything like Freud, anything like modern psychotherapy. What's he talking about? He's talking about what we know of as depression, isn't he? Under the influence of certain disorders, everything will wear a somber aspect and the heart will dive into the profoundest deeps of misery. Then he says this, so pastorally sensitive. He says, it is all very well for those who are in robust health and full of spirits to blame those whose lives are sicklied over with the pale cast of melancholy. But the evil is as real as a gaping wound and all the more hard to bear because it lies so much in the region of the soul that to the inexperienced, inexperienced it appears to be a a mere matter of fancy and diseased imagination. Reader, he says, never ridicule the depressed. Their pain is real. Though much of the evil lies in the imagination, it is not imaginary. 
150 years ago, he was writing that. And maybe you're a Christian. You're even sitting here thinking, yeah, but Christians don't get depressed. I can't be depressed. Just a little bit down in the dumps, just a bit, because Christians don't get depressed, right? Well, tell that to Spurgeon. Tell that to Haman, the writer of this psalm. It's okay to admit to this despair. It really is okay. In fact, it's important for your spiritual health to speak it out. Speak it out to God. To voice those feelings to God. The, the psalmist speaks out that he's feeling buried alive. He speaks out also this other sense that he's drowning. That's another picture that he gives us of his suffering. He's drowning. So in verse 7 he says, Your wrath, God, it lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Verse 15, Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. He feels like he's drowning. Do you, ever, do you know that feeling? Or, where life is just like, it's just like it's coming up to your neck, coming up to your neck, and, and you get on tiptoe, but it doesn't seem to... It's, doesn't seem to matter. Actually, the psalmist says in, in Psalm 69, the, you're, the, the, the waters have come up to my neck and they keep going. In Psalm 42, verse 7, the psalmist says, all your waves and breakers have swept over me. Have you ever felt like you're drowning? The psalmist does. You know, the Bible gets you. We deny what's going on down here, and he just writes it in black and white for, for us all to see, and he says, I get you. I know all about this, and we'll see in a moment the depths that he has gone to, to, to know all about this. Let's listen to Spurgeon again on these verses. It's so important, especially because maybe you're sitting here, and you're thinking, I'm not allowed to feel despair because nothing too terrible has happened to me. You know, I haven't lost my job or, or my marriage. Uh, I'm not right now you know, battling through cancer or some serious outward bodily disease. I don't feel any right to feel despair. Well, listen to Spurgeon. He says, the mind can descend far lower than the body. For the mind, there are bottomless pits. If you think about it, physically speaking, there's no such thing as a bottomless pit. Mentally, there is. Spurgeon says, the flesh can bear only a certain number of wounds and no more, but the soul can bleed in 10,000 ways and die over and over again each hour. If you're physically bleeding, you'll bleed out and it'll be over. You can bleed to death again and again mentally. You can die a thousand different ways and die over and over again each hour. That's what the psalmist is feeling. Buried alive. He's drowning. And then thirdly, the psalmist feels abandoned. Verse 8 says, You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. Or verse 18, You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Darkness is now my closest friend because my friends now shun me. And, and do, you, do you get the way that the psalmist is phrasing it? Not just my friends don't like me anymore. He's almost painting this picture as though God shows up and, and he takes them by the hand and he's leading them away from him. So they turn from him and he is left alone, abandoned in the darkness. 
He feels utterly abandoned. Is there anything more painful than broken relationships? Is there anything more painful than when a bomb goes off in a family and just tears people apart? Is there anything more painful than a friend who betrays you? And this is in God's songbook. Millions of people have been singing this for thousands of years. We're, we're meant to identify with these feelings. Feelings of being buried alive, of drowning, of being abandoned. What do we do with these feelings? Do we just bury them deep down, put on a, a church face because it's Sunday and smile? Is that what we're meant to do? When every third song in God's songbook expresses the anguish of the pit, what should we do? Well, Haman prays his despair. He's, he's still faithful in the midst of, of suffering, but it doesn't look the way that we think faithfulness look, looks like. We, we think faithfulness looks like plastering a, on a smile, stiff upper lip, and on we go. What does he do? He prays it out. Verse 1 and 2. I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. And he's not done. Verse 9. He says, every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Verse 13. He says, but I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. Day and night. Every day. He gets up in the morning and he prays it out to God. What would it look like if we did that? What would it look like if we prayed Psalm 88 in our own lives? I think it would look something like this. Let me try and put some words to it. I think it would mean saying, God, I really don't know if I like you right now. I really don't. If you had shown up when we asked you to, if you had shown up, this wouldn't have happened. And now it has and it's on you, God. We prayed it's on you. You have allowed this to happen. I know it says in the Bible, I know that it says that you work together all things for good for those who love you. I know that it says that in the Bible. Well, God, you've got a lot of work to do. A lot of work to do. I know it says in the Bible that you love me. Well, you've got a funny way of showing it. I'm so angry with you. I'm confused by your absence here. I am so hurt. I feel so let down, so abandoned by you. And I'm not going to just take this in stride and plaster it on a grin and pretend it's okay. I'm not going to do that because it's not. While I can muster the strength, I'm going to rage against this. But God, I'm going to take my rage to you because I don't know what else to do with it. But maybe you do. I'm going to take it to you. God, you have stripped away the things that I love in this life. You have stripped them away like flesh from my bones. And now all I have is you. And I don't know where you are. I don't know where you are. I don't even know if I like you anymore. But you're all I've got. Amen. I think that's what it looks like to pray Psalm 88. And Psalm 88 is in the Bible said that you know sometimes that's the kind of prayer you need to pray. If you're always praying Psalm 88, something's wrong. 
If you're never praying Psalm 88, something's wrong. Lament is in the Bible for a reason. So what do we do? Do we just, okay, great. Now, you know, you know how to do it. Off you go. You know, go and shake your fist at God this weekend and come back next week and tell us how it went. Is that how we finish? Do we sort of say, fine, we've seen how Haman did it. Go and do likewise. Is, is that what we should do? Copy Haman. Well, in some ways, yeah. In some ways, that would be a... a a real help to you, but I think there's something deeper to say from, from Psalm 88, and it's to think about this. Who is Haman? Who is this guy who is praying this psalm? Well, you'll see that there's actually a, a heading at the beginning of this psalm. It, it says it's by Haman. It's by this priest. It's by this worship leader whose job it is, is to stand between God and the people and to sum up the people's anguish and to sum up their prayers and to direct them towards God. That's, that's his job. But you know how to read your Old Testament, don't you? You know that in the Old Testament, all of these things were pencil sketches of the Lord Jesus. All these things were sketching out who Jesus is in advance of him taking flesh. And then when Jesus came, what does he do? He inks it in. And so you think about the prophets in the Old Testament. They were pencil sketches of Christ because they came bringing God's word uh, to people. And then Christ came in the flesh and he is the, God's word to people. He yanks it in. In the, Old, <coughs> in the Old Testament, we had the kings, the kings who were, were, were sort of sketching out what it would look like when, when Christ came as the universal and eternal ruler. And, and they were pencil sketches because some of them looked quite good for a, for a time, but, but then they died. And then Jesus comes in the flesh, the true and eternal king, and he comes in and he inks it in. But now think about the priests. These priests were the go-between between the people and God, bringing them together, summing up their praise and praying it back to God. But, but all these pencil sketches, like Haman's, are telling you what Christ would do. And do you know when Christ came in the flesh, he prayed Psalm 88. He prayed all the Psalms. Most fundamentally, he is the psalmist. He is the worship leader. He is the prayer, the great high priest who sums up our suffering, sums up our prayer, and prays it back to God. And so you go through the Psalms, you see all these different ways the psalmist felt you know, buried alive. Did Jesus feel buried alive? Well, I'll just read out to you from Luke chapter 22. This is the night before Jesus died. He's alone in the garden of Gethsemane. He withdrew about a stone's throw. He knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup of suffering from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And being in an agony, in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. It's fascinating. Throughout the Gospels, you see lots of people who kind of think that they can do it like Jesus and do it with Jesus. But you get right to, to, to when the heat gets turned up. You get right to the ultimate suffering of the cross and everyone falls away. In the end, only one person can pray Psalm 88. In the end, only one person can keep on being faithful in the midst of darkness. And, and Christ does it for us in our name and on our behalf as our great high priest. He prays before the Father. 
And he's in that furnace of affliction. He's, he is feeling the agony. He is feeling like he's buried alive. He's feeling like he's drowning. In, in, in Matthew 26, verse 38, Jesus says, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He could almost be quoting verse 3 from the psalm. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He's not just saying, I'm about to die and I'm sad about it. He's saying, the sadness I feel could kill me. The sadness itself could kill me. He's overwhelmed, drowned in it. And then that prayer in Gethsemane, how does it end? It ends with betrayal and desertion. Here comes Judas, his friend who had just shared a, a meal with him. Here's Judas betraying him. And there are his friends who swore that they would be iron for Jesus until the bitter end. And they run and they flee. And he dies alone in the garden. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He takes up every single lament onto his own lips and he prays it with an intensity that you and I could never feel. There he was, abandoned by earth, and so thrust up into heaven. And as he's thrust up into heaven, heaven shuts and goes black. My God, my God, why have you, have you forsaken me? No answer. Isn't it astonishing to think that God the Son takes God-forsakenness unto himself? God the Son doesn't just allow you to pray in your God-forsakenness. God the Son sums up your God-forsakenness and turns around and prays your God-forsakenness back to God. He takes God-forsakenness into himself. What kind of God is this? He takes even God-forsakenness into himself and prays it up to God. The Lord Jesus, he knows how to pray, Psalm 88. He knows how to pray Psalm 22. He knows how to pray Psalm 39. He knows how to pray Psalm 42. He's prayed them all. He's summed them up. And, and you know what? He, he, he took it through that suffering, through that death, out the other side. And he's still praying. And he's praying for you now in the midst of your suffering. And even when you feel God forsaken, even when you feel, God, where are you? Even there, you can know the fellowship with the God-forsaken one. Where can you go from his presence? You can't. Even in God-forsakenness, he is there. Brene Brown is a, a sociologist, and she's one of the most popular TED Talk speakers. You know, TED Talks, they're, they're kind of like mini-sermons for secular people, really. And, and she has millions of <coughs> downloads and she talks in one of them about what to do uh, when you've got a suffering friend. And she says, when you have a suffering friend, there are two words that will kill your relationship with them. Those two words are, hmm, at least, at least, dot, dot, dot. You know, your friend says, we just had a, a miscarriage. And, and, and you say, well, at least you know you can get pregnant. Or you say, our son is being kicked out of school, and you say, well, at least your daughter is a straight-A student. Or you say, my marriage is on, a is on the rocks, and you say, well, at least you are married. Is that helpful? She says, no, at least never helps. You know the two words that always help? Me too. 
me too. When you climb down into the pit with the person and you say, I know, me too. What God's li- what, what's God like? In the midst of your pit, in the midst of, of, of your darkness, what is he like? Does he, does he yell down from heaven and say, well, at least, at least. Does he, does he simply say, oh, count your blessings. Does he simply say that? No, he comes down into the midst of your darkness and he says, me too. Me too. And I know in the experience of my own life that the times of deepest fellowship with Jesus have happened in the midst of the deepest feelings of God forsakenness. It's counterintuitive. But it's kind of what you'd expect if you know the God of the cross. Spurgeon, I keep coming back to Spurgeon because he knows all about this stuff. He says, the Lord will ne- never has his children in the furnace without joining them in it. And he's referencing Daniel 3, you know, the story of the three faithful men in the furnace. And there's a, a fourth figure in the furnace, the Son of God with them. And sometimes God leads us to these wilderness places where Christ is all you've got. And there you realize Christ is all you need. So what should we do with our suffering? What should we do with our anguish, our despair? Pray it. Pray it. And sometimes you, you won't be able to put words to it. Sometimes all you can do when suffering hits is groan. You know, the Bible knows all about that. Romans chapter 8 says all creation is groaning and we groan. And in Romans 8, verse 26 says, And the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Isn't that amazing? When you can't pray, he's praying with you and in you and for you. And sometimes all you can do is groan. But take those groans. Just groan in his direction, okay? That, that's, that's level one. Just groan. Groan towards him. And, and know that the spirit of Jesus is growing, groaning. Know that Jesus himself, your great high priest, continues to carry you in prayer even in those moments. That's level one. Level two, just pick up Psalm 88 or pick up one of these other psalms from the songbook and use them as your own. And maybe you can't do anything more than just read it out and say, in Jesus' name, amen. Maybe that's all, all you can do is just read that out. Or maybe you can go a step further. Maybe as you read one of these lines, it just triggers you off and you can start to, to, to put words, your own words, uh, to your own suffering and pray it in Jesus' name. And at some point, I don't know when, but at some point, you start to feel the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. At some point, you start to feel that. Well, I'm going to finish with this. Uh, a pastor I know has spoken... Uh, he has spoken of a young lady in his church who suffered in the dark with a, a lot of uh, depression and a lot of self-harm. And one day she wrote an email to him, although it wasn't really to him. It just began with the line, Dear Jesus. And it was basically a prayer. Uh, she didn't know what to do with her feelings, and so she just typed them out. And she said, Dear Jesus. And she wrote it, and then she sent it to him about feeling in the dark. And in response, what he decided to do was actually to reply to her as Jesus. Risky, but nevertheless, he replied to her as Jesus. 
And here's what he thought Jesus was saying to Mary. That was, that's not her real name, but, but, but this is what he thought Jesus was saying to Mary. And if you like, here's what he's saying to you in answer to all your Psalm 88 prayers. Here's Jesus' letter to you. Dear Mary, I hear you, I know you, I'm for you. In the midst of your darkness and pain, in the midst of your sin, I hear you, I know you, and I'm for you. I have you on my heart before the Father, and I pray for you constantly. I offer to God the perfect praise, the perfect sacrifice, the perfect prayer in your name and on your behalf. You are more than forgiven, Mary. Your sins have been covered, cleansed, and removed as far as the east is from the west. My work on the cross was complete. There's nothing between you and God now, only me. And I'm keeping you together, and I will do that forever. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. When you feel unable to pray, I am praying for you. When you feel far from God, I am lifting you to Him. When you wallow in the darkness, I've got you in the light. When you sin, I am bearing the wounds of your forgiveness. When you despair, I will hope for you. When you suffer, I sympathize from the depths of my heart. When you die, I will welcome you with open arms. I am your salvation. I am your standing before God. I am your identity. I am your future. I am your life. You are united to me, and I'm never letting go. Yours forever, Jesus. And if indeed those promises of Jesus, if they are true, uh, then this table is then confirmation of those promises. And so the invitation to you this morning, if you believe in and are trusting wholly on the Lord Jesus, is to come to this table and to have the promises and assurances of Jesus confirmed to you. Confirmed to you as you, you hold and taste these uh, emblems of his body and blood. And as you do so, know that he is the one who knows our sorrows He's the one who has entered into our sorrows, and he is the one who is with us in our sorrows, and he is the one who has promised to ultimately bring us through our sorrows. And so as we come to this table, feed upon the 